Proverbs 31, verse 25, says, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Fathers, I encourage you today to encourage your wives, if they are mothers, encourage your wives, encourage your mother uh, that what they do is a noble thing, what they do is a valuable thing. What mothers do day in and day out as they make the home the priority in their life, what mothers are called to do if they are fulfilling God's word is invaluable. It is priceless. They ought to be praised in the gates. You should speak well of the mothers in your life. We should honor them and tell them thank you, uh, not just when they cook a good meal and not just on Mother's Day once a year. We should tell them thank you often. Uh, Mothers, I want to encourage you, don't give up and don't give in. I know it's hard. I have seen my wife toil uh, through the years, giving herself to the work of motherhood. And I can witness and testify that it is uh, no light matter. Yet, at the same time, there is, even, even though there is much given in motherhood, there is uh, much to be gained in motherhood. The product if, uh, of the fruit of your labors, if you would do it God's way, uh, you cannot put a price tag on that. My old pastor used to go down the whole list of all the things that a mother does, you know, managers, uh, vice president uh, to the CEO, um, uh, cleaner, daycare, teacher, um, chauffeur, just the list was endless. And if you add up the salary of all those lists, there's no way we could pay a mother for all that she does, right? Uh, That's why we affirm mothers are precious. They are prized. And yes, it is the calling of the mother to make make her children the priority in her life. Without getting into all the details, The command is not, don't ever work outside the home. The command is, make your children and your household, the people there, the priority. If you're able to make your children, your husband, the household, a priority, and not neglect the things of your household, then it's obvious from Proverbs 31 that you can have endeavors that always promote the goodness of your household. 
But yet, even in Proverbs 31, we see that there is no doubt that this woman, this valiant woman, is a woman of the home. That's her home base. That is her priority. That is where she pours herself out into. Ladies, if, if you are pouring yourself out into some company and have nothing left for your family, nothing left for the household, something's off. And you and your husband need to reevaluate your standard of living. Uh, you need to reevaluate your priorities. You need to reevaluate your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I know all of this is, you know, a lot right at the beginning before we even open up the, 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 word, of, the, the word of God. <clears throat> but, I, but I feel like I need to say that because we don't have very many opportunities. As we exposit scripture, we don't have very many opportunities to speak on these things. And I want to be clear, uh, dear mothers, that the world will denigrate, devalue what you do in the home. That's all they do. It's amazing how they will scoff at a mother who decides to uh, educate her children and yet highly prize another woman who wants to educate your children who is not the mother. It's double standards, and we need to see through it as a church, as biblically-minded people. We need to see right through their lies, their deception, uh, their double talk. Everything that a mother does is precious. So, mothers, be encouraged today that we are thankful for you, that you're loved, that you're appreciated. You may not get all of the trophies and the rewards and the paychecks of the world, but what Christ gives you as your inheritance is far beyond anything that this world has to offer. Be encouraged. There is a quote in our bulletin that says, Christian mothers, be of good courage. You are surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses, witnesses of the faithfulness of God's promise, witnesses to the power of believing prayer, witnesses to the efficacy of sound religious instruction. Go forward in your work with holy confidence. Great and many indeed are your difficulties, but greater is he that is for you than all that can be against you. Be of good courage, mothers. All right. Well, let's turn to Exodus chapter 5. Excuse me, Exodus 4. Sorry. Exodus chapter 4, this morning, we're going to be looking at this, at the whole chapter this morning. Um, so, uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter, we're going to read large chunks as, at a time as we walk through it. The title of this message, of this sermon, is God's Chosen Instrument. God's Chosen Instrument. This morning, dear saying, I, I desire that you would believe that God can use you for his glory. Believe that God can use you for his glory, especially 
this morning, you mothers. Now, tombstones never tell the whole story, do they? When somebody passes away and uh, they're buried, um, if they're buried in the ground, there's usually a tombstone. Uh, gives their name, their date of birth, the date of their passing, and maybe a Bible verse or maybe uh, something just about them, a, a few words uh, to describe the, the person who passed away. There's always, you know, kind and lofty words describing that person that passed, and, but it never really tells the whole story, if we're honest, right? Uh, they, they never say, here lies so-and-so, he made decent money, he was an average basketball player, he was nice most of the time, uh, he made some really bad choices uh, in his early years, but eventually things turned around. It doesn't say that on tombstones, right? No, that's not really how we usually remember those. And it, it's right. Uh, it wouldn't be honoring. It wouldn't be respectful of somebody to put those kinds of words. But even in history, history books are written with lofty, kind words, exalting words of men and women of the past. But <clears throat> it's rare that they're brutally honest and tell the whole story. The Bible, however, is clearly not solely written by men because the Bible <clears throat> portrays its heroes truthfully, warts and all. This gives us great encouragement. <clears throat> Uh, Selvaggio, A.T. Selvaggio says, this gives us great encouragement because we have plenty of insufficiencies ourselves. The fact that God enlisted his people in his service who were far from perfect gives us great hope that we too can be useful in his kingdom. So as we look at Moses' insufficiencies this morning, you will likely share at least some of them. Let it be an encouragement to you that God can use flawed and insufficient people like Moses, like you, and like me. God chooses his instruments. He's God, after all. He can use anybody he wants to to accomplish anything he wants. And yet he chooses the flawed. He chooses the insufficient. He chooses the weak, the poor, the needy, the fools of the world to abase the wise. This is what God does. This is what he's been doing since the dawn of time. And we'll see this morning that if you are to be an instrument in the hands of God to do great things in this world, God's human instruments must be powerless, teachable, and obedient. <coughs> Excuse me. God's human instruments must be powerless, teachable, and obedient. First of all, you must be powerless, Christian. Verses 1 through 9, Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses said, 
What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord does not appear to you. The Lord, and the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by, the, by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now we see here in verse 1 that Moses' first inadequacy that he sees of himself was that he was not a great man. He didn't demand attention and respect. He, he knew that he lacked credibility with those that God has called him to deliver and minister to. Moses was convinced that the Israelites, in verse 1, would not receive his words. It's as if he's saying, why would... It's as if he, he's, he's anticipating the Israelites saying, why would the one true God appear to you, Moses, of all people? You, a fugitive, a traitor, really? Now, Moses wasn't wrong that he was powerless or inadequate for the task. Moses' problem, though, was that's all that he saw about the situation. He let his own shortcomings limit God's perceived ability of what God can do through and in Moses. He allowed his faults to limit what he thought God could do. And so in response to that kind of attitude, that kind of mindset, in verses 2 through 9, God's response to Moses' doubts was to give Moses displays of his power. First with the staff turning into a snake and then back to a staff. Then with Moses' hand being made leprous and then healed fully in an instant. And then last, with the promise of turning the Nile water into blood. Now, all of these three miracles that God displays and promises to Moses are actually custom-made for a people who were born and raised in Egypt. As Moses was to do these things before the Israelites to convince them that he's worthy of their attention and that God is worthy of their, of their following him, this was custom-made for these people. You see, because 
the snake, the serpent, was a sign of power in Egypt. It was on the crown of Pharaoh. It was closely tied to him. It, it was one of the central figures in the Egyptian uh, polytheistic uh, idolatry system. Leprosy also was actually very rampant in Egypt. And at that time, there was no known cure or remedy uh, for leprosy. Not only this, but the Nile in Egypt was, it, it was seen as the, this great divine source of life for all of Egypt. Practically, it sustained their livestock, their crops, their, their travel, their commerce, and their own very lives. They depended on it completely. So it was, the, it was one of the central gods of their religion. And all of these signs that God uses, connected to all of these things, the snake, leprosy, and the Nile, all of these signs and wonders showed that Yahweh is the one true God. Not all these other gods, but Yahweh alone, God alone. And they showed and proved that his authority was over these false gods. Also, his authority was not limited to some mountain in the wilderness. His authority was over Egypt as well, because these miracles were to be done in the land of Egypt. Now, God gave these signs so that the Israelites would believe and listen to Moses. After all, this, this belief was what Moses was worried about in verse 1. And this belief is why God gave these signs. Look at verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has appeared to you. And then again in verse 8. If they do not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. And then verse 9 at the beginning. If they don't believe these two signs, then do this last third sign. This is the point. God calls us to believe in him, to trust him, and to show it in our actions. God reassures Moses and, and encourages him for the task at hand. Not by boosting his self-esteem. Not by, by uh, coddling his self-confidence or his ego. No. He encourages Moses for the task at hand by proving God's power can operate through Moses. That's how he encourages him. Christian, God's power is greater than your weakness. And so be powerless. It's fine. This is true for all God's people, from Moses to David, through all the generations, including us today. For all of God's people, God's power is greater than our weakness. I must ask you, do you have doubts that God can actually work through you? 
Mothers, specifically, do you feel weak? Are there times where you feel powerless? Like the calling of God on your life to mother your children is simply too much for you? Women of the church, do you feel like God's calling on your life to have a positive impact as you point the younger generation to Christ that that is just something that you are not capable of? God's message for you this morning is for you not to look inside yourself or to boost your self-esteem. It is to look outside of yourself to get a bigger view of God. God is the one who called you. God is the one who placed you right where you are. He has called you, Christian, to be His chosen instrument in your motherhood, in your fatherhood, in your singleness, in your marriage, in your career, in this church. God uses you. So don't limit him according to your powerlessness. It's not up to you. It's up to him. He's the one that does the work. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, Christ reassures Paul and through him us, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Notice, you want to see the perfect power of Christ in you? Then perfect your weakness. Get really good at being weak and dependent on God. And then He'll use you in great ways. And so therefore we should echo the words of Paul in response. Most gladly therefore... I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Yes, I am weak. Yes, it is everything in me to get up in the morning and to live for the Lord. I I can't do it unless I cry out to God first. Yes, I fail and I fail often if I neglect the Lord. Without him, I am a hot mess. Now, you might say this morning, sure, you know, I I believe God is powerful. Of course, who doesn't? I believe that he can do great things, of course. But it's just that he's probably not going to do those great things through me, you see. Well, I would point you to our next point, be teachable. Verses 10 through 17 Exodus 4 10 through 17 then Moses said to the Lord please Lord I have never been eloquent neither recently nor in times past nor since you have spoken to your servant for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue the Lord said to him who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind is it not I the Lord then go And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. 
Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. Now, Moses' second inadequacy that he sees about himself for this calling upon his life was that he wasn't good with words. He's not a man of words, it says. It's likely that he stammered or stuttered. It's possible that this is primarily because Hebrew was not his first language. Remember, he was raised in Egypt. And so to go to the Hebrew people, maybe there was a communication gap. It's probably a little bit of both. But nonetheless, Moses reasons with God. God, it's obvious, Lord, that I know you're going to do great things, but it's obvious, you know, I would just get in the way. It can't be me. Notice God's response in verse 12, excuse me, verse 11. Moses has lost sight of who his God is. God reminds him, I made you. I created you. I create all mankind. If there is a speech impediment, if there is a flaw, a weakness in your nature, God made it so. If there is a flaw in the instrument, it is not outside of God's sovereign design. Christian, your personality, your physical limitations, your, your mental limitations, whatever it might be, whatever uh, weakness or flaw or inadequacy that you, your mind just automatically goes to when you, when, when you think about how to serve the Lord or how to live for God, those flaws that your mind goes to are part of God's design for you. He gave that to you. I'm not talking about sinful tendencies. We put those off. We kill those things. But just part of who you are. God intends to use you as you are. In verse 13, Moses yet still remains hesitant. The wording there in 13 could imply that Moses was saying, Please, Lord, send someone else. And that might be a stretch, but it definitely is far from Isaiah's response to God's commission. Remember that? Remember when Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Moses' answer in verse 13 is more like, I sure hope you find someone to send. That can be our attitude, can't it? You know, I'll pray for that. You learn of a need in ministry. 
You, you learn of a, uh, of a need uh, in the local church. You, you learn of somebody uh, in your life that is needy and, or maybe even wayward. You have a conversation with a loved one or a friend or a complete stranger and, and God is just serving up that softball to share the gospel. And we often, don't we, just step back and say, Lord, I hope you find somebody to fill those shoes. Because obviously it's not me. We come up with all kinds of reasons why it shouldn't be us. Now, in verse 14 through 17, God's reply to Moses is this wonderful display of this mixture of his justice and his patience. Now, God's anger that it says he has here is right. It's righteous. God righteously burned in his anger against Moses. It was clear, right, that God had chosen Moses. Moses was God's chosen instrument. This, I am sending you. It's already been said. We'll see later on that he's, he continually says, go, go, go. And Moses doesn't go. And so, of course, God in his righteous anger, he burns against Moses. Yet Moses still is stuck in his doubtful hesitancy. So the Lord's anger burned. Yet at the same time, at the same time, notice in verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, notice what he doesn't say. You know what? Forget it. I'll find somebody else. You know what? You're right. I I can find somebody better than you. That is not what he says. Instead, he sends Moses a helper. Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So we see the Lord's anger burning, yet the first thing that he says is compassion. We know God is righteous in his anger, yet at the same time we do know that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. We see that patience demonstrated here by God's willingness to give Moses help in the form of his brother Aaron. Now Aaron spoke well, and he would be the one who would speak for Moses to the Israelites. Notice that that Aaron is not to speak for God. Rather, in in, in verse 16, he shall speak for you, Moses. He doesn't speak for me directly. What does this mean? God's chosen instrument was still Moses. He's just giving him a hand. Moses would still speak for God. God would still teach Moses what to say, and Moses would still be God's mouthpiece. 
But now, God patiently and kindly places Moses in a situation where he has help. And Christian, this should remind you of yourself, right? Like Moses, we too are so inadequate for God's calling upon our lives. Mothers cannot raise and nurture children. Fathers cannot lead their families. Pastors cannot shepherd churches. Workers cannot work as unto Christ. Christians cannot serve the local church. We cannot reach the world with the gospel on our own. We need God's help. And that, even that word help doesn't fully communicate how dependent, utterly dependent and needy we are. Right? It, it, it sounds like God's just you know, giving us a little boost and we'll take it from there. Or I, I can do 50%, I just need God's help with the other 50%. No, that's not what help means. Because without God, we will fail. So it's stronger than just this, this small word of help. But nonetheless, that is the word that God employs in Scripture. And for us, New Testament saints, we are not sent an Aaron. We are sent a helper, the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 and 17, Christ says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That, his, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. Christ is promising this promise of the New Testament covenant that, that is exclusive to us as, as New Testament saints, that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, will dwell within us as his people. We will have, as it were, this Aaron with us all the time. We will have the, the presence of Christ mediated through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference here between Moses and Aaron and us and the Spirit. We will not teach our helper like Moses taught Aaron. Rather, he teaches us. And that's exactly what Christ gets to later on in John 14, 25 and 26. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So we see that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to, is to continue to illumine the Word of God to us as his people. As we have the complete revelation of God in these pages of Scripture, he will illuminate it to us. He will... He will enable us to understand it and apply it and value it. And not only that, he will enable us to obey and to live it out. And oh, how we need that enablement, that divine help to obey. And that's our third point this morning. Be obedient. Be obedient. So as God's chosen instruments, we must be powerless, we must be teachable, and we must be obedient. Verses 18 through 26, 
a large chunk here. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my, first, is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And at that time, she said, You are a, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is a, a puzzling passage, especially those last few verses. I wrestled with this this past week, and it was interesting as I wrestled through this, especially those few verses towards the end there, it was, it was interesting how every single commentary that I would go to for advice and for help, every single one said, this is one of the most enigmatic passages in all of Scripture, Meaning, I don't know what in the world is going on here. No, we, we do. God does give us light into this passage. I believe he would this morning. But just to say, the opinions differ widely. But we'll do our best this morning. First of all, it all falls under this theme of obedience. As God continually pushes Moses forward in his obedience to him as he goes back to Egypt. We see here another, again, another one of Moses' inadequacies was that he was slow to obey God. He was slow to obey God. We see here in verses 18 through 20 that Moses goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, And he goes there rightly to get his permission to leave. Since he's been living with him and helping him manage his things, it's only right, it's an honorable thing for him to ask permission and to let his father-in-law know that he's going to take his daughter and his grandchildren away. Yet, at the same time, in verse 19, we see Moses is still hesitant, it seems, to go back to Egypt. Look at verse 19. 
After, verse 18, Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Seems like Moses was fearful. He was a fugitive after all. And it seems to have been passed down to the next pharaoh. Keep an eye out for this Moses guy. He's trouble. If you see him, bring justice on his head, kill him because he killed one of our people, the Egyptians. Seems like Moses is aware of that. He's fearful of that. And so it appears like he is still hesitant because God still has to say again to Moses, go, because those people that were going to kill you, they have all passed and you have nothing to fear, Moses. On top of that, we do see even in verse 18, in Moses' own wordings, that he's doubtful of the success of this mission. Verse 18, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and deliver them out of slavery. No. It says, and see if they're even still alive. Moses is doubtful that there's anything to go back to. Moses is doubtful of the success of the mission. And so we see this attitude of Moses. He's just slow to obey, doubtful of the success of the works of his hands. And and again, as I mentioned before, this is in addition to Moses' words of hesitancy and doubt throughout the last two chapters. Chapter 3, verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Verse 13, Moses said again to God, <clears throat> Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will say to me, What's his name? Chapter 4, verse 1, as we saw already this morning. What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Verse 10, chapter 4. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently or in times of past. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Uh, verse 13, again, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will, not me. Repeatedly, Moses is communicating doubt, hesitancy, slowness to obey God's repeated commands to go. This is exactly the point. In chapter 3, verse 10, where, it said, where God says, come now, in chapter 3, verse 10, therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh. That word, those words come now is the same exact commands in the rest of the passage, go. So God is saying, now therefore go and I will send you to Pharaoh. And he says that again in verse 16, go. Again in chapter 4, verse 12, go. Again in verse 19 of chapter 4, go. This is the fourth time that God in the same conversation has had to, or in the same string of events that God has had to command Moses to go. Again, Moses 
is slow to obey God. Now that brings us to verse 21 and 23. Whereas God patiently deals with Moses, sending him to Egypt, he gives Moses more assurance of his desire to save Israel. Not even, he says, not even the opposition of Pharaoh, the ruler of the greatest empire on the face of the earth, could not stop the great I am. I will deliver my people. Now we will address this topic of I will harden his heart. This is a phrase that is repeated throughout Exodus, so we don't have to spend time looking at it now. We will address it later. The, the sovereignty of God, the work of God in the life of sinners, but yet the sinner's responsibility before God for being hard in their heart. Both are true. And God is just and right in that reality. But we'll address that to greater depth at another time. Otherwise, mothers will not be able to be celebrated today. There's much more in this, in, this, in this passage that we need to get to. But nonetheless, not even this great ruler, Pharaoh, can stop God in his love and his care and his plan of deliverance for his people. Why? Look at verses 21 through 23. Verse 22 Israel is my son, my firstborn. Verse 23, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel was God's firstborn son. Three times God refers to Israel as his son in these two verses. What does that mean, though? Well, as a child of the father... A son is the object of the father's love and care and protection. And the firstborn son in ancient times was the one that was especially given an inheritance. The firstborn son in ancient times was a primary representative also of the father and the family name. So the firstborn son not only received and could expect the love, care, and protection of the father as his son, but also being the firstborn, he was, he, was placed in the, he was put in this place of special honor and responsibility. This is how God sees his people. This is how he saw Israel. This is how he sees us in Christ, the perfect Israelite. Now, despite this great reminder of God's love, care, and affection, and desire to deliver Israel, this sets, up, sets us up for another example of Moses' inadequacies. Specifically, Moses' slowness to obey in verse 24 and 26, through 26. Let's read those verses again. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, this wording of firstborn son, the language of God's son and Pharaoh's son, this, this, this communication of this covenant, relational kind of love that God has for Israel, all of this should have reminded Moses about God's covenant love for Israel, his son. God's love for his son, Israel, was in the context of covenant and promise. Israel was God's son by adoption. God chose to love Israel. And by God's choosing of Israel, he, he pulled them and separated them out of all of the children of the earth. It was this adoption unto himself. And the central sign of that adoption, that transaction, that, that covenant was circumcision. Remember who the first, you could say, in a sense, the first Israelite was? I know that's not the right way of saying it, but in, in a sense, the, 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 the father of the Israelites is Abraham. He was the first child of God, as it were, adopted out of the children of, of the world. And it was with this man, Abraham, that God established his covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And the central sign of that covenant was circumcision. In Genesis 17, 9, says, God further, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, he goes on in, through verse 14, but that's the main point. This covenant that I have with you shall be, shall be uh, signified by this act of circumcision on the male children. This is something that will separate you from all of the other uh, Gentiles, all of the other pagan peoples, all of the other people who are not my people. My people will be known as my people, and the sign of that will be circumcision. This is my covenant with you, he says. And this sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, was to be done throughout the generations. That includes Moses. Now, Moses had either forgotten or neglected God's clear command to circumcise his son. Gershom, his son, was not circumcised. And so because of this, in verse 24, God disciplined Moses, bringing him near to death, it says. And who came to Moses' aid in that moment? Who helped Moses obey God? Mom. It's interesting. Verse 25, Zipporah circumcised Gershom, their firstborn son. 
And she either touched or threw it to Moses' feet, which, which symbolically connects him to the act of circumcision as if he had fulfilled the covenant of, uh, of circumcision uh, as if he had obeyed God in this act, even though he didn't. He was still under the discipline and the heavy hand of God near death. But yet Zipporah, she, for whatever reason, she, and, and however we are not clear, she knew about this covenant. She knew God's expectation. She knew the command. She knew that they were living in disobedience. And so she helps her husband, Moses, obey the Lord. She protects her household by taking action and bringing her family, her family, her household more and more under obedience to God. So the result is, in verse 26, God left Moses alone. He left him alone so he can go, go back and go on to going back to Egypt. Christian, if you want to be used by God, if you want his power to be evident in your ministry, if you want him to help you, if you want him to teach you, if you want him to speak through you, you must obey him. This is the theme of this section. This is what Moses showed that he is still working on. But God is teaching him, you must obey me. You must, and you must identify with me through circumcision, through my covenant that I have with you. You must be my people, and you must be a people that live by my word. That's what God is communicating. Now for us, the first act of obedience is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation from sin and judgment. That's the first act of obedience because he commands you, repent and believe, right? So obedience is how you start the Christian life. But it must not end there. Your first act of obedience as a Christian is to get baptized. The New Testament sign of our covenant with God, the new covenant. And as a Christian, you must continue on in a life of obedience to God. Now, you don't have to be perfect in order for God to use you. Just look at the rest of the, of the chapter, verse 27. Now, the Lord said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which, with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. Moses spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and they worshipped. In very quick style, where this event was anticipated and commissioned and described for two chapters, chapter 3 and 4. 
in just a handful of verses, it happens. It comes through fruition. At least phase one. But nonetheless, we see Moses was slow to obey in so many aspects of his life. But yet his trajectory was that of obedience. His loyalty lied with God. And so God used him. Notice their response. With with all the doubts that Moses had, right? Notice how quick the response of the people is. So the people believed. In verse 31. They did what God told them to do, Moses and Aaron, and they just believed. And they worshipped. They bowed low and worshipped God. Doesn't seem to be a fight. Doesn't seem to be this back and forth between Moses and Aaron and the people. It's just God fulfilled his promise. I'm going to use you. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. But the question is, who's your master? What's the direction of your life? Is it obvious to others that you are a Christian? If not, then you need to go back to step one. Repent and believe. Now, as we close, we identify with the shortcomings and the faults of Moses, don't we? powerlessness, the, the need to be taught, the, the, the slowness to obey. And that's why we can apply this passage this way to us in our lives, to be, to be powerless, to be teachable, to be obedient. However, if we're careful, and we need to be careful when we read the Old Testament, Moses is mainly here to point us to Christ. Moses was God's chosen instrument. Christ is God's chosen instrument of salvation. God would speak through Moses. God spoke and speaks through Christ. God would save and deliver through Moses. God has finally saved and delivered in Christ. Now, Christ is far greater than Moses. He is the fulfillment of Moses. It is as if God is setting up for us here in chapters 3 and 4 as he calls and commissions Moses and describes Moses to us and what he is intended to do. It's as if God is setting on the floor these pair of shoes. And it's obvious Moses doesn't fit the pair of shoes. And so we identify with that inadequacy that Moses had. That we just can't feel the shoes. But the point is, of this passage, of these chapters, look at the shoes, right? Look what God is is setting up. There will be somebody who can fully and completely fill those shoes. Christ is a fulfillment of Moses. Hebrews 3.3, it says, Christ has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 2 Corinthians 3 says that the glory of Christ's ministry surpassed the glory of Moses' ministry. Christ himself said that, that something greater than the temple is here, somebody greater than Solomon is here, and, I, and it, 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 it reasons that he would have no problem with saying somebody greater than Moses is here. 
given these other passages. So what does this tell us about Christ? Moses and we are powerless, but Christ is perfect in power. He is all-powerful. And his miracles on earth prove that he is God's chosen instrument of deliverance. Just look at his life. They testify and validate who he is. Also, Moses and we desperately need to be taught the word of God. But Christ is the word of God. He never needs to be taught anything. He is perfect in wisdom and understanding. And he is God's chosen instrument to teach us in all of life, to guide us. Moses and we are so greatly lacking in our obedience to God. But Christ lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He is spotless. He is glorious. He is perfectly righteous. He is fully pleasing to God, His Father. And Christ's perfect obedience fills up our lack because by faith, by our faith in Him, He imputes His righteousness to our account so that now we can be accepted in God's sight. Not only that, Christian, we too are God's chosen instruments in this world. God intends to use you for his glory. That's what he did with Moses. That's what he does in Christ. That's what he wants to do in you. He wants to use you for his glory. He wants to use you to bring the gospel of deliverance to those around you. And he has every intent to use you to minister to the church, the people of God. It is his plan, Christian, to use you as his chosen instrument. His chosen instrument of, of, of grace to your children, mothers, to your spouse, to your co-workers, your peers, your parents, and your local church. He has every intent to use us. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for choosing to use us, weak, feeble people. God, and I pray, Lord, that you would encourage your people, give them faith that's required to live in obedience. Lord, I pray that you would uh, stoke that fire within them to want to, want to be used. Lord, if we've been lazy or slow to obey, if we've been pushing off responsibilities in the local church or in our lives to others, not fulfilling your calling upon our life, God, may we repent and turn and just live in obedience and have faith that you'll do something with us. We may not see it, but God, you are powerful. You are able. You're not limited by us. We praise you for that. We pray, Lord, that you will be exalted now as we sing. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.